Welcome to Episode 7 of The Other Side of the Story. In the last episode, we talked about getting to Texas and what Texas plantations and farms look like. In this episode, we're going to explore what it was like to work on a Texas plantation. The vast majority of enslaved Texans performed agricultural labor in rural areas. Andy J. Anderson, who worked on a Williamson County plantation, provided a good overview of what this was like in his interview with the Works Progress Administration interviewer. I was going to explain how it was managed on Massa Haley's plantation. It was sort of like a little town, see, because everything we used was made right there. There's a shoemaker, and he's a tanner and made the leather from the hides. Massa had about a thousand sheep, and he got the wool, and the slaves caught it and spin and wove it. That made all the clothes. Plantation was planted in cotton mostly with the corn and wheat a little because Massa didn't need much of them. He never really sold anything but the cotton. As Anderson explained, Texas planters grew crops for both sustenance and for the market. Plantations and farms were as self-sufficient as possible. So what was a typical year like for an enslaved field hand on a cotton farm? What kind of work could an enslaved person expect to face? Let's go through the four seasons of a year on a Texas plantation. At the start of the year, field hands were put to work creating beds for planting. This meant using a horse, mule, or ox-pulled plow to create beds spaced about six to eight feet apart. Cotton planting began in March. Enslaved workers would use a different type of plow to open the beds to a depth of five or so inches. They would then throw handfuls of cotton seed into the furrow. An animal-drawn harrow, a tool kind of like a big heavy rake, would bury the seeds and break up clods. With the seed now planted and the soil broken up, enslaved workers would pass a roller of some sort, maybe a log or wooden block, over the beds to pack down the soil. Plantation owners typically kept journals of the daily work occurring in their fields. Here are a few days in March from the 1848 journal of Stephen Perry, the brother-in-law of Stephen F. Austin. For each day, Perry noted the date, the activities performed in the fields, and whether enslaved workers were sick or absent. I'll read four days of journal entries. March 6. Commenced plowing in the prairie field. Very good plowing since the rain. Setting out potato slips. Planting cotton in the bottom field. Betsy's sick this afternoon. George absent today. Wesley absent. Sylvie working in the garden. March 7. Breaking up cotton ground in the prairie field. Planting potatoes. Sylvie absent. March 8. Breaking up cotton ridges in the prairie field. Cutting up cotton stalks. Planting potatoes. Sylvie absent. George absent. March 9. Breaking up cotton ridges in the prairie field. Cutting up cotton stalks. Commenced planting cotton in the prairie field today. Sylvie absent today. George absent. We don't know where Wesley, Sylvie, and George were. Maybe they ran away for a while, or maybe Perry gave them a pass and sent them on an errand. But as you listen to these entries, did your eyes glaze over a bit? Imagine having to do this repetitive work. By midsummer, sprouts would appear. Workers then weeded the rows with a hoe. This was sometimes referred to as scraping the rows. Have you ever weeded a garden with a hoe? You get the idea where the word scraping comes from. Workers also thinned out the row, leaving about two feet between the plants. While this was happening, other field hands would work their way down the rows, loosening the earth and pulling up grass and weeds. By late June or early July, the cotton was tall enough to shade the ground, which slowed the growth of weeds and grass. So the effort of weeding could ease. During this time, 
Known as lay-by, workers were moved to other tasks such as growing food crops, clearing more land, digging wells, what have you. The heads, or bowls, of the cotton began to open later in July. Some bowls would be picked around this time, but most of the picking occurred in the fall. Have you ever plucked a tomato off the vine, or maybe a peach from a tree? It's pretty easy to do, yes? Picking cotton is not like that. You might recall that in episode 5 I talked with Professor Andrew Torgett about the arrival of slavery in Texas, but I pulled part of our conversation out because I wanted you to hear, in this episode where we're talking about work, his comments on what it was like to pick cotton as an enslaved person. I have never actually touched a cotton bowl until a few weeks ago, even though I've read about slavery for years. Uh, My wife and I were shopping at this store, and they had a few branches uh, of a cotton plant uh, used for decoration, I believe. And so I've clipped a couple of these little heads or bowls, which I'll just toss one to you, and I'm just tugging on it now. I'm startled at how difficult it is to get out. And it makes me think, how in the world could folks who were on the clock picking this and under a great deal of pressure, how could they pick 50, 100, maybe even more pounds a day and yet not destroy the plant in the process? Yeah, it takes a lot of finesse and skill to be able to pick Mm -hmm. cotton well. I think anyone who's actually picked cotton in the field, and I have not, I just want to say that, but... Uh, everybody I've talked to, I've talked to a lot of folks who grew up on cotton farms mm-hmm. in Texas and have picked cotton firsthand will tell you just what brutal work it really was to, to pick cotton. Because um, you have, so the way cotton, if anyone's not seen cotton, right, it's this plant that has all these, as they're called, bowls that pop out of it. And so you've got these like kind of little cotton pockets sort of thing. But the problem is, um, the A, there's a lot of them you got to pick, but they've got these like husks around them. They're like little razors that are just sort of surrounding and protecting the cotton. So if you go in with your fingers and you're not nimble enough, you can easily, quickly slice your fingers on these, on these husks. And, and that's just one cotton bowl. And you got to pick tens of thousands of these to meet your quota. So in the period that I write in Seeds of Empire, you know, the cotton picking season was a frantic period because... You're racing against nature and the clock before a freeze would come or some sort of rains would destroy your crop. So as soon as you can pick, you pick as fast as you can, as much light as you can use, sun up to sundown. Everybody's in the field. And the slaves, if you're on a plantation or a farm that had enslaved people, you know, they've got quotas they got to meet. You got to pull in a, you know, you're aiming for about 100 pounds. That is a lot of cotton. I mean, it's an obscene amount of cotton because these things don't weigh very much. Mm-hmm. So the amount of this you have to pick is astounding, but you have to be mentally dialed in when you're doing it because you can't put it on autopilot because otherwise your fingers will get ripped to shreds and you'll just be bleeding all over the cotton. And, you know, you can imagine all the all of that would happen to you as a slave if that were the case. So it was this brutal, painful, difficult work that people for as, you know, as, as young as toddlers would do up to the oldest people possible could be brought into the fields because they're trying to maximize as much as they can in as short a period as they possibly can. It is astonishing. And I'm holding a part I just pulled out. It's about the size of a cotton ball, and it weighs nothing. Yeah. You know, I, I cannot imagine how folks could pick 100 pounds of that in a day. Yeah. Well, they'd have contests. There were, there were contests. If you read the newspapers from this era, right, they'll, they'll, they'll print uh, notices of, like, I don't know, Jerry over at wherever. He, his son picked 200 pounds on last Thursday. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, it was, 
there was actually um, the first cotton bale that could be shipped into a place like Galveston. There were contests by um, by companies down there. They'd give some sort of prize to the first one that could be brought in. So there was the whole state was very much dialed into the speed and and um, volume as as much as they possibly could in producing the cotton cotton crop. But surely the enslaved Texans who were actually pulling the cotton, they dialed into what, what was really going on. It was kind of against their own interest to win one of these contests in the long run, wouldn't you think? Or Well, it's yes and no. I mean, different plantations um, sometimes had rewards for whoever picked the most cotton in a given day, maybe more food, uh, maybe some time off on Saturday as opposed to just Sunday. Um, you know, planters... Uh, there's all kinds of different um, plantation masters, and they some were vicious and used violence as their main, as they tried to think of it, motivation. Um, some tried to motivate people by giving them potential rewards for picking cotton. So it kind of depended, I think, on on how people measured, you know, whatever they felt was in their own personal interest. Um, but your your main interest was in not angering whoever could possibly whip you or right. your children or whomever. And so meeting your quota was probably your best interest. Exceeding your quota, probably not, because then that'll become your next quota. And so it's that's the thing. It's it, All these enslaved people who are trying to do this are balancing so many different aspects of life all at once. And, you know, I think we would do well to try to think about what kind of mental strain that would be to have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Balancing that work, balancing the needs, balancing the fact that you're being watched, the fact that your family is engaging in all this at the exact same time, wondering and probably worrying about what their experience is going to be and not being in control of so many of these different factors all at once. You know, it's really amazing to imagine what what some of these people endured and how they endured it. The heavy season for picking cotton occurred during the late summer and through fall into December. Workers dragged sacks down the row behind them and dumped what they had collected into a larger basket they stationed at the end of the rows. They'd pack the cotton down in the basket and in the evening carry the basket to a weigh room which might be in a storage building or gin house. And there began the nightly ritual of weighing each enslaved worker's production. Because of the long days out picking cotton, Weighing typically occurred by candlelight. I want to detour for a moment to consider how the need for field workers affected enslaved children. In episode 3, I mentioned a woman named Anne Rainey Thomas. Her husband had given her an enslaved girl as a nurse for their son. The girl's name was Adeline. I did not mention that Adeline also had to work as a field hand when cotton was ready to be picked. The Thomases required her to pick 50 pounds of cotton a day. When she failed to pick her quota, the Thomases beat her with a whip. At the time, Adeline was six years old. Adeline's experience was not unusual. Slave owners moved children to field work at an early age. As Jacob Branch of Chambers County recalled, We children started to work as soon as we could toddle. First, we gathered firewood. If it was freezing or hot, we had to go to toughen us up. When we got a little bigger, we tended the cattle and fed the horses and hogs. By the time we were good sprouts, we were picking cotton. We were never idle. As enslaved children grew up, did they ever have the opportunity to attend school or at least learn how to read? Well, keep in mind that learning was a low priority in an economy based on workers toiling in cotton fields. 
So the answer is generally no. In fact, it was usually discouraged because slave owners wanted an illiterate and thus more controllable workforce. Slave owners knew that an enslaved person who could read and write might do what a fellow named Frank did. This is from an 1849 newspaper ad placed by Frank's owner. My Negro man Frank left my plantation in Montgomery County on Wednesday night. He was about 30 years old, of copper color, and quick-spoken. Took with him a large quantity of holiday clothes, pen, ink and paper, and some books. Can read tolerably well and writes legibly, has a pass of his own writing, and in all probability will try to pass as free. Frank wrote his own pass to freedom. Well, while you all were slaves, did they teach you to read and write? That's John Henry Falk, a folklorist who recorded a number of interviews with formerly enslaved people. This sort of audio interview of a formerly enslaved American is very rare, and of the ones that exist, many are of poor quality. But this one, with Harriet Smith, who was formerly enslaved in Texas, is an exception. Let's listen to some more. Well, while you all were slaves, did they teach you to read and write? Did you all go to uh-uh. school? And... Uh-uh. Uh-uh. They know nothing about reading and writing. All that I know, they teach you to mind your master and your missus. <laughs> they sure didn't teach you to read and write. No, they didn't. Pick cotton, I remember picking cotton. Just picking cotton. Andrew Sims of Freestone County echoed what Smith had to say. There was no place to learn to read and write. No big brick schools like they is now. Odie Lime Bowman owned the place next door. If he catches slaves toying with the pencil wire, he cut off one of their fingers. Then I reckon they lost interest in education and get their mind back on the hoe and plow like he said for them to do. The message was clear. Get back to work. Enslaved Texans were seemingly always on the clock. Listen to Moe Smith of Lamar County. When I grew up a little more, they gave me so many rows of cotton to hoe or pick. I worked my own rows, and they timed me so I had to hurry and get the work done. And when they sent me off to the farm to do a chore, they timed me on that too. And here's Sarah Ford of Brazoria County. The overseer sure worked the slaves from early morning till night. When you're in the field, you better not lag none. Master Charles ran that plantation just like a factory. Cotton had to be cleaned and baled before it could be sent to market. This meant that it was time to use the cotton gin. Bob Maynard of Falls County described this process. The overseer saw to it that the cotton was took to the gin. They used oxen to pull the wagons full of cotton. There was two gins on the plantation. Had to have two for it was slow work to gin a bale of cotton as it was run by horsepower. Cotton gins and cotton presses were often housed in three-story buildings. As Maynard mentioned, they were typically powered by horses. The animals would turn large saws in the gin that slowly pulled the cotton fibers away from the seeds. This cleaned cotton would fall to the bottom floor, where it was taken to a cotton press that compacted the fibers into heavy bales that were tied up and thus made ready for market. Not every farmer growing cotton could afford something as expensive as a cotton gin, so less affluent farmers would pay planters to use their gin. I wonder what such a farmer thought when he arrived at the plantation and saw the planter's mountain of cotton bales. Would that farmer dream of owning more slaves so he too could someday own a mountain of cotton? Imagine the pride that the plantation owner felt as he watched the farmer eyeball all the cotton and all the people who grew it, harvested it, and baled it. 
I'm king of the world. What did enslaved workers feel as they gazed upon the looming pile of cotton? Bitterness? Suppressed anger? Did it remind them of the blood they had spilled to create it? How long did workdays last? As one worker put it, he and the other enslaved workers were in the field from, quote, can see to can't see. And in Texas in the summer, that meant about 12 hours a day. Each morning, enslaved workers were ordered out of their cabins by a bell or a horn. As Phyllis Petit of Rusk County recalled, That old horn blowed way before daylight, and all the field Negroes had to be put out in the row by the time of sunup. John White of Cass County had a similar memory. The overseer would blow the horn and shout out the loud call, Oz you up? And everybody knew it was four o'clock and time to pull out them cabins ready for them chores. In short, field work meant hard labor day in, day out. As Annie Hawkins remembered, I never had no white folks that was good to me. We all worked just like dogs and had about half enough to eat and got whipped for everything. Our days were constant misery to us. Workers were typically given a brief time to stop in the field and eat at midday. How much time they had to eat varied, of course, from plantation to plantation. At the end of a day laboring in the fields, workers on many farms were met by a feeding trough, as Adeline Cunningham recalled. They had a big trough, just like the trough for the pigs, and they had a big gourd, and they toted the gourd full of milk, and they broke the bread in the milk. The slaves came in from the fields, and their hands were all dirty, and they were hungry. They dipped their dirty hands right in the trough. Enslaved Texans also worked inside the big house, serving the owners directly. This usually involved cooking, cleaning, washing clothes, or working as a seamstress. Some enslaved workers were put in the house to be close to children they were charged with caring for, or so that they could rise early and get the household ready for the day. Many tasks were monotonous. Enslaved children often stood by the dinner table, slowly waving a fan to keep flies away. Others waved fans to cool their owners as they napped. Working indoors might not have been as physically taxing as field work, but it carried its own risks, as Ida Henry of Harrison County reported to her interviewer. My mistress was sometimes good and sometimes mean. One day the cook was waiting the table, and when passing around the potatoes, old mistress felt a one, and as it wasn't soft done, she exclaimed to the cook, What you bring these raw potatoes out here for? And grabbed a fork and stuck it in her eye and put it out. The cook lived about ten years and died. Around the time that WPA workers were interviewing formerly enslaved Texans, my father-in-law was a boy working in a cotton field in southern Louisiana. As part of a tenant farming family, they worked land owned by someone else and paid the rent with a portion of the crop. My father-in-law recalled that picking cotton was not a pleasant experience and that it was particularly hard on the hands. But as difficult as this was, he was picking cotton for his own family. At least he didn't have to watch all the benefits of his labor taken away by someone who owned him. My thanks to Lauren Upshaw for handling the sound for this episode. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time to hear the other side of the story.